0: Hello, fellow rebel capitalists. Hope you're well. So, a little under the weather today, but I just saw this speech from Javier Malay at the World Economic Forum. And Klaus, by the way, introduced him. So, I thought that was a very interesting dynamic there. A lot of different types of body language. So, I wanted to review that on the channel right now. If you haven't heard it, it is a fantastic. Fantastic speech, very inspirational. I just tweeted that it's a lot like watching your favorite team in the Super Bowl just score like over and over and over again, like you're like getting out of your chair and like cheering. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So uh, let's go over that. Before we do, what is Davos? Right. So it's gal traditional, you know, like BBC has a little bit of a, a UK accent, exactly what you'd expect from cnbc or the world i don't know why whenever they do davos the gal or the guy always has to have some sort of british accent i don't know why that is but uh they're sitting there and for the first you can see four minutes of this video there's she's just talking about how great the economic or the world economic forum is and klaus and how they started in 1971 and it's this incredible gathering of business leaders and politicians and celebrities and blah 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 but then right here, she does acknowledge that the optics might not be great. And the elephant in the room here, of course, is how everyone hates the World Economic Forum. Everybody. It doesn't matter if you're on the left, on the right, in the middle. If you're an average Joe Jane, you don't like the World Economic Forum. It says, name one person that you know right now that actually likes the world economic forum, Josh Q, the jeopardy music, nobody, <laughs> nobody. I don't care if you're Rachel Maddow or Tucker Carlson and everyone in between, we have one thing in common. That's it. Nobody likes the world economic forum and it's obvious why, right? But listen to her address the elephant in the room. You guys are going to love this.
1: in 2021, and while launching a worthy cause in Davos is great for exposure, it isn't always good for optics. The image of CEOs and business leaders sipping champagne in the mountains and the billions of dollars. And of
0: course, she's got a bottle of champagne right in front of her.
1: Blurs <laughs> in business deals that have come out of the event have made some critics skeptical, to say the least. Davos is not some secret underground cult. Next. In a-
0: That's it. That's it. So. We talk about the global elite, the Davos types, being a Marxist-Malthusian cult. We say that all the time. And, and the evidence, I think, is clear. And, and that's the elephant in the room for this entire seven-minute video. And that's how much they address to what is on everyone's mind, right? Davos is not a, a, some sort of cult for rich people. Next! Oh, well, my goodness gracious, when you present your argument like that, who on earth, (laughs) who could, uh, who could debate that? I mean, when you present those types of facts, my goodness gracious, you must be right. Anyway, that's how ridiculous the mainstream media treats the global elite. When I would argue they have the worst brand in the world today. But like name a brand outside of the World Economic Forum that has worse PR, uh, maybe Putin, like, like name another one, but name a corporation, whether it's Exxon, like no, coal companies, for heaven's sakes, they have better, they are more popular in the eyes of the public than the World Economic Forum. They literally have the worst brand in the world today. Yet for some reason, the media just gravitates towards them. It just bows down, and you know what? Another thing that I thought was funny—I I, let me go back and do a switch up the screen share here—is uh, I saw on Zero Hedge how there were a few of these, you know, central planner types that were expressing their frustration with Twitter and Elon Musk at the World Economic Forum, and they're basically talking about how it's become just like a dumpster fire. And that now it's just completely unusable. And I'm like, it's not unusable for normal people. It's unusable for you. Because finally, you're not protected by all the people that hate you. Because you're an authoritarian. Right? So I think this sheds light on how uh, Twitter, prior to Elon Musk, was really acting as a shield from the central planners to the general public. Because the general public on Twitter can go out there and reply to their tweets, can comment, can do all these things and express their frustration for the policies of the global elite. But what happens is when Twitter is kind of acting as a firewall, then these global elite never see it. And they think, oh my gosh, everybody loves me. But then when Elon Musk comes down and breaks uh, and takes down that firewall, then all of a sudden they get all this hate. And they're like, oh, my gosh. Well, no, no, this is because of Twitter. No, 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 no. It's not because of Twitter. It's because of you. It's because everybody hates you. And now, all of a sudden, you're just, you're, you're just being revealed the truth. <laughs> and they can't, they can't handle it. Let's get back to Malay, because this is really exciting. I mean, we talk about a lot of the problems in the global economy, in the monetary system in uh, in the world today. But man, this is something to really get excited about. This is really, really inspirational. So let's go over to this. And first I want to start, and I'll just kind of, we'll go through clips. I'm going to bring up some charts, and then we'll, I'll, I'll comment, kind of a reaction video. But let's start by Klaus introing. <laughs> ah, ah, Malay, this is hilarious because you know that, that Klaus was just like, he wanted to say something negative, but he just like couldn't because he needs to keep up with appearances because at the end of the day, he's, he knows that his, uh, his, his, his superpower is that he's a power broker between all of these global elite. And that's how he's going to achieve his Malthusian Marxist objectives. But he knows that, Millet is, is basically the antithesis of everything that he believes in. So watch this. You guys are going to love it. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen.
2: It's for me a great, great honor to welcome Javier Millet. As you know, he's the freely elected president of uh, Argentina.
0: <laughs> it's it's almost like someone's got to... You know what? I'll. You know what this reminds me of? It's like someone is introing another person while off to the side, like outside of the frame, there's like a gun pointed at him, where they've got to say exactly what the person with the gun wants them to say, regardless of whether or not it's their opinion. In fact, what they're saying is the opposite of what they truly believe. You could see he's just really struggling. He's like, uh, well, uh, it, 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 he's just... Well, you guys know, he he's this freely elected guy, I, I, I guess. <laughs> he is just really struggling with this.
2: And it's actually your first trip to a foreign country after you have been elected. First, congratulations for your election. And congratulations also to your sister who managed your um, election campaign. I think you... Sometimes people would say with more radical methods, but you introduce a new spirit to Argentina.
0: You know what this also reminds me of when I was young, as, as most of you can probably imagine, I got in a lot of trouble. Like I was getting suspended from school, like like right and left. In fact, I, I remember I counted one time from like sixth grade. All the way to my senior year in high school, I got suspended at least, it was at least once per year. And usually my average was about three times per year where I'd get suspended from anywhere from one to five days. And that's regardless of whether I was in a private school or a public school. (laughs) And what this reminds me of is the teachers that absolutely hated me. They, They hated me for obvious reasons. But yet sometimes I, I would do something uh, like I, I won a scholarship one year because of, of this project where I just I did an exceptional job and I just crushed everybody. So the my my teachers had to come up and it was a presentation in front of the parents in front of a large group of people. And they actually had to come up and present me with this award. Right. But they all just hated me. So you could so when they're up there presenting to the group, it's like they they had to say something nice, but they were just like uh, like struggling to. It. It's exactly <laughs> it's exactly what Klaus is doing right now with Malay, making
2: Argentina much more related to free enterprise, to entrepreneurial activities, also to bring Argentina back to the rule of law. So, we have a very extraordinary person among us today, and of course we are all eager uh, to listen to you, and again, a very cordial welcome to the World Economic Forum.
1: Good afternoon. Thank you very much. Today, I'm here to tell
0: you that the Western world is in danger. Fantastic opener. Fantastic. By the way, uh, Javier, if you're watching this, I can totally empathize because you see his glasses falling down. Mine do the exact same thing. (laughs) I hate that because I always got to push it back up. But uh, fantastic opener. Let's just get right down to nuts and bolts. Let's not beat around the bush here. That, that we, we've been doing that for the last 25 years. Time to, this is where rubber meets the road. The, the West is in danger. Let's just say it like it is. And then he goes on to say why it is in danger. And it is endangered because those who are supposed to have to defend the
1: values of the West are co-opted by a vision of the world that inexorably leads to socialism. And thereby to poverty. Unfortunately, in recent decades, motivated by some well meaning individuals willing to help others, and others motivated by the wish to belong to a privileged caste, the main leaders
0: of the world. And others who who are trying to basically suck up to a privileged class or become part of this privileged class. I mean, he's going right at him. You guys, I mean, you got to put yourself in his position. You are in front of the enemy right here. You've been invited to this thing. You know, you're, you're out there shaking hands with Klaus. And you know, every single person in that crowd is a socialist. And every single person is who you are describing. And you're not beating around the bush. You're going right at them. In fact, the, the only thing that I would have done a little bit different if I was uh, Malay is number one, I, I probably would not have uh, done this behind the podium. I, I, I would have preferred to do this walking from side to side. And for, for those of you who uh, have seen me speak live, like at the New Orleans Investment Conference, or maybe Rebel Capital Live, something like that, uh, I, I've got a lot of experience public speaking. And one of the best things that you can do as a public speaker is make eye contact and not just make eye contact with the group as a whole, but with individuals. Once you when, when, I'll tell you how to determine whether or not you're really, really good at public speaking. When you can address the room and break it down into segments, the audience, I don't care if you're talking to 500 people or a thousand. I used to talk to thousands of people up on stage almost on a weekly basis. And when I became very, very good, is when I was not thinking about the words. I'm not thinking about what to say. It's, it's it's flow, it's flow. And what you're doing is you are focusing your energy on certain sections of the crowd, and you're doing that by making eye contact with specific people. And what you're doing initially when you get that opener is you're is you're kind of measuring the room, and you're deter- you're determining. Who is engaged and who is not engaged? A little public speaking lesson for everybody. And what you want to do is you want to focus on the people who are not engaged. So as an example, someone's looking down at their cell phone. Or another thing that would happen is sometimes you'd have someone in the crowd that was like still wearing sunglasses, like totally disrespectful, totally disrespectful. And what you can do as a public speaker, and what I would do is if I saw someone wearing sunglasses, I would literally stare at them. It didn't matter if there's a thousand people in the room, I would stare at them until they took their sunglasses off. And trust me, it doesn't take long because most people are scared to death of public speaking. So when you are able to channel your energy directly toward a specific individual, it makes them very uncomfortable, (laughs) like really uncomfortable. And you're kind of like in a tug of war. Like who's gonna become more uncomfortable or who's gonna become uncomfortable enough to look away, you or them? And all the pressure's on you. So if you can sit there and stare at them, I don't care if it's five minutes straight, I guarantee you they're gonna fold. They're gonna fold. So that's the only thing, and you know, he probably has to read the speech and whatnot. So I don't want to be too critical of him. But man, if if he could have addressed the audience, the crowd that way, where he's making eye contact with every single individual that he knows is one of those socialists that he's referring to. Like when he's sitting there talking about the people that basically had good intentions or the people that were sucking up to the global elite, I would be looking at every single person in the audience that was right at the top of that list. As far as people you knew were sucking up to the power, sucking up to the, I would be looking right at them as I said those words. And what you're doing right there is is you are, gaining total control of the audience as you're speaking. It's not just the words that you speak. In fact, it's far more important the way you present yourself and the way that you speak. And so anyway, let's get back to this here because uh, what he says is fantastic, regardless of whether he's behind the podium or not. Western world have abandoned the model of freedom for different versions
1: of what we call collectivism. We're here to tell you that collectivist experiments are never the solution to the problems that afflict the citizens of the world. Rather, they are the root cause. Do believe me, no one better place than us, Argentines, to testify to these two points. When we adopted the model of freedom back in 1860, in 35 years we became a leaning world power. And when we embraced collectivism over the course of the last 100 years, we saw how our citizens started to become systematically impoverished and we dropped to spot number 140 globally. But before having the discussion, it would first be important for us to take a look at the data that demonstrate why free enterprise capitalism is not just the only possible system to end world poverty, but also that it's the only morally desirable system to achieve
0: this. If we look at only morally desirable system to achieve this. And by the way, I love what he's doing in going up there and starting off with telling a story of the history of Argentina and then showing specific statistics and data points, because you guys know from watching my videos, I'm sure you've done a lot of research on this, um, Yourself, when you watch videos from these global, the Klaus types, whether it's Christine Lagarde, whether it's Ursula from the UN, whether it's, uh, what do we call them, Josh, uh, Necky Valdez with the, the, the BIS, any of these, these people that fall into that category, they, they never give you specifics. It's always just these glib, like bumper sticker slogans that really don't mean anything. And they can sit there and literally talk for 15 minutes and not say anything. You guys know exactly what I'm referring to. Just because someone's talking doesn't mean they're saying something. And that's one of the reasons I would assume most of you watching this video don't trust the global elite because intuitively you get that. You see the platitudes. You see the pandering. You see the arrogance, just like with Klaus introing Malay right? And and that turns you off. But intuitively, you understand that although they're talking for 15 minutes, they're not saying anything. And that's one of the main reasons that we don't and shouldn't, by the way, trust these people. Because if they were trustworthy, they would be like Malay. They'd be talking and saying something of value, saying something substantive while they're talking. So let's get back to it here.
1: at the history of economic progress. We can see how between the year zero and the year 1800, approximately, world per capita GDP practically remained constant throughout the whole reference period. If you look at a graph of the evolution of economic growth throughout the history of humanity, you would see a hockey stick graph an exponential function that remained constant for 90% of the time and which was exponentially triggered starting in the 19th century. The only exception to this history of stagnation was in the late 15th century with the discovery of the American continent. But for this exception, throughout the whole period between the year zero and the year 1800, global per capita GDP stagnated. Now, it's not just that capitalism brought about an explosion in wealth from the moment it was adopted as an economic system. But also, if you look at the data, what you will see is that growth continues to accelerate throughout the whole period. And throughout the whole period, between the year zero and the year 1800, the per capita GDP growth rate remains stable at around 0.02% annually, so almost no growth. Starting in the 19th century, with the Industrial Revolution, the compound annual growth rate was 0.66%, and um, at that rate, in order to double per capita GDP, you would need some 107 years. Now, if you look at the period between the year 1900 and the year 1950, the growth rate accelerated to 1.66% a year, so you no longer need 107 years to double per capita GDP but 66 and if you take the period between 1950 and the year 2000 you will see that the growth rate was 2.1 percent again the CAGR which would mean then in only 30
0: 30- so let me we're, we're going to go over some charts here in just a moment I just want to play uh, a little bit more of this but what he's talking about is, is spot on and uh, I wish he could have thrown up some charts there to, to show the crowd um, because he's just basically smashing them with, with reason and and facts. And uh, what you have is just stagnant growth per capita GDP in real terms, I mean, until you get to the 1800s. And then you have this new system and all of a sudden you have exponential growth. And whether we like what has happened since 1900 in terms of the value of the dollar, there's a lot of things to be frustrated about and some things that we could improve on. But the bottom line is is you have to acknowledge how we have had not just growth per capita, per capita GDP growth in real terms, but it has increased when you look at the compounded annual growth rate. So we're going to look at this in a chart, but you can see it pretty much go exponential starting in 1950, right? So that means people are getting richer. The standard of living is increasing But it wasn't happening equally from country to country. So what you can do, and this is the chart I wish you would have had, is you break down not just global per capita GDP, but you break it down by country. And then what you can do is you can look at what these countries who are doing better have in common, the common denominators. And then you kind of sit there and scratch your head and you're like, hmm, I wonder if this means anything. And it becomes blatantly obvious what is the biggest difference between the countries that grew at a faster compounded annual growth rate relative to the ones that grew at a much slower compounded annual growth rate. Because when he's talking about that, remember, he's just talking about the average of all the countries combined, but some were far, far, far better. Another thing, well... I'll I'll wait. Let's play a little bit more. And then we're going to get in some of these charts too, because a lot of this has to do with energy, but it's a chicken or the egg thing, right? So, would we have had this explosion in the abundance of energy that allowed GDP to do that and allowed the population to grow as it did if we would not have had free market capitalism? I would argue no. So, the free market capitalism has to come before the excess. To more and more energy, which then allows the GDP per capita to grow and then the population to grow as well. You you, you gotta figure out what has to precede the other things and 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 the kind of timeline in order. So you can imagine a world where we have no free market capitalism. It's feudalism or whatever. Okay, well, are you should you expect to see Massive growth, even if you do have access to abundant energy. Answer, no. In fact, the, the history of the world is proof of that. <laughs> Think of how much energy they had in the 1500s or whatever. But no one even discovered it because we were in a, a, this idiotic system where people couldn't control their own destiny, i.e. private property rights. Let's get back to it.
1: In three years, we could double the world's per capita GDP. This trend, far from stopping, remains well alive today. If we take the period between the year 2000 and 2023, the growth rate again accelerated to 3% a year, which means that we could double world per capita GDP in just 23 years. That said, when you look at per capita GDP since the year 1800 and until today, what you will see is that after the Industrial Revolution, global per capita GDP multiplied by over 15 times, which meant a a boom in growth that lifted 90% of the global population out of poverty. We should remember that by the year 1800, about 95% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty, and that figure dropped to 5% by the year 2020 prior to the pandemic. The conclusion is obvious. Far from being the cause of our problems, free trade capitalism as an economic system is the only instrument we have to end hunger, poverty, and extreme poverty across our planet.
0: Boom. And, and, and let's also acknowledge the fact that he's not saying capitalism. It's not capitalism, capitalism, capital. No, 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 no. Free market capitalism. You always have to make sure that you're talking about free market capitalism because what the naysayers will bring up is, oh, look at the, the, the Fed bailing out the banks. That, that's capitalism for you. And although some idiot might be able to argue for momentarily, inaccurately so, that that's some sort of proof of capitalism. What they cannot argue, if they're being intellectually honest at all, is that that's somehow free market capitalism. There's no way that anyone, I don't care how far you are to the left, there's no way that you can argue a bailout is free market anything. It, it By definition, it is the opposite of a free market. So we always have to... Preface capitalism with free market capitalism, and I think it's just absolutely fantastic that Malay does that. So now, before we move go any further, let's look at some charts that really back up what he's saying, because I think we can come to some uh, very interesting conclusions. And although they may be very broad, and we're kind of looking at this from a thirty thousand foot level, this should tell anyone who sympathizes with the Marxist cult, that if you truly care about the poor middle class, then you need to stay away from any collectivist ideas as much as possible. And you need to promote free market capitalism because it's not perfect. But we got to realize that we live in an imperfect world controlled by imperfect human beings. So we're not trying to find a perfect system. That is not possible. What we're trying to do is find the least bad system. And the least bad system that has been proven over and over and over and over again is free market capitalism. And to Malay's point, it is the only way, it is the only moral way and the only way to improve the lot of the poor and middle class, not just in the United States, but globally. So let me switch up the screen share and let's move over to some charts. First and foremost, let's look at, this is what Malay is talking about. I mean, it's really staggering, honestly. When we, the the red line is world uh, GDP per capita. And this is adjusted for inflation. So this is, they're pegging it to $1990. uh, And then we've got the population of the world, which starts to grow here in the 1600s. And uh, most likely with improved uh, medicine and whatnot. But you can see what Malay is talking about right here in the 1800s. This red line just goes parabolic just straight up. So you got to ask yourself, okay, what changed? What, what, what happened here? And the, the, the answer is we discovered, we the West discovered a new system with private property rights and everything that came out of the creation of America, which at the time was, we have to remember, was a novel idea. I mean, this, is, this had really never been tried before. It was like an experiment. And the idea... Or the ideas that the United States was built on are, are absolutely fantastic. And unfortunately, we're moving further and further and further away from the ideas that not only made this country great, but made so many other societies great and brought their, middle, uh, their poor and middle class up the ladder. As far as their standard of living, like Malay said in 1,800, 95% of people lived below the poverty line. Now we fast forward and it's, what did he say? 5% in the West. I mean, that, that is unbelievable. And all you're doing is just giving people a, a system to thrive and sitting back and doing nothing. This is not a result of leaders. This is not a result of politicians. No, 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 no. This exponential growth curve is a result of the average Joe and Jane just unlocking their potential and giving them the ability to pursue their own self-interest, which means pursuing the interest of their family. And in doing so, you're unleashing the invisible hand that Adam Smith talks about. And this is the result right here. So why would we want less of this? Why would we not want more of this? It's just so simple. It's so easy. Now let's take it a step further. Let's break it down by specific regions. So, like I said, that exponential growth curve that we just looked at, that is just kind of an average of the whole world. Well, let's break it down by countries and and, and regions and kind of ask ourselves: well, what, what did these guys have in common that did very, very well, that did a much better than average? And what did these guys have in common? that were far, far below average. So you'll see right here that the winner is the West or offshoots of the West, the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Now, second place is Western Europe. So I know the United States has a lot of problems, but if any of you have been to Europe, you know that although we are far, far from free market capitalism in the United States, we're a lot closer to that than Western Europe. <laughs> Believe it or not, there's even more regulations, there's even more bureaucracy in the EU and in Western Europe than there is in the United States. And so, and I guarantee you that, that out of all these countries, the United States is what's bringing this up uh, so significantly over Western Europe. And then you have New Zealand and then you have Eastern Europe. Okay, but let's see when they started to improve the, gradually here with communism as they got organized, but then it starts to go down and then it goes up way quicker. And that's when you did what? You got rid of communism, collectivism, and you moved more towards free market capitalism. It's the exact same thing in Asia. And uh, I mean, you could just see this happen. Over- so now we go down to Southeast Asia or Sub-Sahara Africa or Latin America, and you see that they didn't experience near the amount of growth as let's say Western Europe or Western offshoots like the United States. So what are the differences there? I've traveled all over the United States and I can tell you that if you go to Africa or Latin America, yes, it is true that the cultures are different and it is true that culture matters, but they're not that much different. They're not different enough to explain why in one country, you've got, let's say, $60,000 per capita GDP. And in sub-Sahara Africa, you've got 5,000. Look, it, it, these people are just as hardworking, if not more so, than the people in the West. Now, they may have different values and whatnot. We can debate that. That's on the margin. But at the end of the day, we're all human beings. And we're all hardwired to pursue our own self-interest and to take care of the interests of our family, first and foremost. And especially for guys, what that means is going out in producing more than you consume, right? And the definition of wealth, if you want to get down to the nitty gritty, is a society's ability to create goods and services efficiently. Okay, so if you could just take the shackles off sub-Sahara Africa or uh, Southeast Asia or Latin America, whatever, I guarantee they, they might not get up as high as the United States, but they'd get darn close. They'd get darn close. So the, the The elephant in the room here is that one system is is a lot closer to what we would call free market capitalism. And the systems that do the worst are the ones that are the furthest away from free market capitalism. So just looking at this chart, like Malay is saying, it's just, how can you come to any other conclusion? Like, what would you argue right here? I mean, let's just try to play devil's advocate. Are you somehow going to argue that slavery did this? Because I'm assuming that that's kind of what the debate would be. You know, oh, well that, well, that was because of slavery or that was because of uh, uh, colonization or something like that. OK, well, why did it start to go exponential in 1950 then? And, and by the way, do you think they didn't have slaves in sub-Sahara Africa as if there were no slaves there or if there, as if there were no slaves in Eastern Europe or Latin America? What are you talking about? <laughs> like, literally, every society had slaves. So, that is not something that is unique to the United States. So, you got to explain it some other way. And even within the United States, it doesn't explain this exponential curve, right? So, and that's, and I'm just trying to play devil's advocate there. But you can see that it becomes blatantly obvious that if we want to improve the standard of living for the poor and middle class, there is one way to do it and one way only. Understanding that it is far from a perfect system, but it's as good as we can do in an imperfect world with imperfect human beings. Now let's move over to another chart here that basically is is a one-to-one correlation with the chart that we just saw. And this is energy use. So like I said earlier, I would argue that without the free market capitalism, you would have all this energy, but we would not be utilizing it. The capacity would be there, but the utilization wouldn't. So it's got to start with private property, rule of law, free market capitalism. And then you get the energy. And the energy allows the GDP growth. And then the GDP growth allows the population growth. That's the secret sauce right there. And that's what Malay is talking about. And that's what he presented at, at of all places, the world economic forum, when you have a gathering of all these people that just completely ignore history, I think a lot of them, because they have these crazy, crazy ideas that they think are, well, it's a religion. It's a cult. Like I said earlier, it's, it's this Malthusian Marxist cult where they would look at all this and say, yeah, 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 yeah. Now let me play devil's advocate again, just so you can understand their framework. I almost guarantee you, that almost uh, all of them would say, yeah, George, I get what you're saying. And this is true because this is exactly what Marx talked about. Marx acknowledged the power of the capitalists. He he wasn't really anti-capitalist. He acknowledged that, yeah, they're really good at producing stuff. Got to take your hat off to them. But it gets to a point, they call this late-stage capitalism, where the capitalists start feeding on one another because they can only squeeze so much juice out of the turnip. And then what they'll do because of their greed is they'll start to turn on their own employees, reduce wages, and those employees in aggregate total are their customers. This is the argument. So the Davos types would probably look at this and say, yes, George, everything that you're saying is true. But now we are at late stage capitalism where we have to socialize the whole system to prevent it from collapsing. If someone's going to have an intellectually honest debate, that's the position they have to take. Now, I don't agree with it. I think it's very, very easy to disprove that. But if they're coming from any other angle, if they're just then they're just ignoring the past. They're they're ignoring history. So you can see this shirt that I'm wearing, and this is based on an uh, o- one of those old uh, cartoons in the newspaper. I don't know it was from the 1910s uh, or 20s, something like this. And my good buddy. Uh, Russell Gray with the real estate guys gave me this over the weekend when we were at this, a goals retreat that they, that they host. And it, it, what this really, I think represents is central planning. And you can see this, you know, you can see the octopus that has its tentacles around everything. And when we get into central planning, what we have to understand is this is going to, even at a, at a low level, it's going to distort free market capitalism. And if you're distorting free market capitalism, by definition, you are hurting the poor and middle class. So once you realize that that's the only ticket, that's the only path forward, then it becomes obvious this ethical and moral argument that Malay is outlining, that if this is the best path forward, Any interference with this path is going to be ethically wrong because it's going to disproportionately hurt the people at the bottom. So my point here and his point is it's not just a matter of capitalism or getting rich or any of these things or, uh, you know, per capita GDP, You know, because a lot of people are, like, oh, you can't measure GDP. We have to measure how happy people are. And as if people were somehow more happy during the 1700s when the average life expectancy was like 30 years old. But even if you want to argue that, you, you can't do it from a standpoint of increasing life expectancy and the standard of living for the people at the bottom. That is the most moral argument that you can make. It's the most principled. It's the most ethical, not just in the United States, but all around the world. And the conclusion that you always land on, if you're being intellectually honest, is the best path there is with free market capitalism. Any disruption of that is unethical. And a disruption of that would be an interference by the central planners themselves, regardless of whether the central planning body is the federal government or the Federal Reserve themselves. All right, guys. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. As always, make sure that you're standing up for freedom, liberty, free market, capitalism. Go Javier Malay. (laughs) We'll see you in the next video.